0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me now to Job chapter 32. And uh, by God's grace, we're going to go through chapter 32 through 37 uh, this morning. It'll be a miracle, but God does miracles. So as you're turning there, I want to give you kind of a A little bit of a refreshment of where we've come from. So Job has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they have each gone three rounds with Job, basically toe-to-toe in the ring. And they have uh, repeatedly tried to convince Job that All of his sorrows, all of his afflictions, all of his troubles are because of his great sin. So they, each one came up. They stepped in the ring. They sparred with Job. They hit Job. Job hit them back. That one got out of the ring. Another one stepped in the ring. Same thing. You have three rounds of all three of them going up against Job. Well, basically Job has wore them out. And they've tried their best to convince him that he was a terrible sinner and needed to repent, and then God would restore him. And Job knew in his heart that this was not right. And at the end of round three, Zophar, the third friend, doesn't even have the energy to step into the ring again. He's kind of like, uh, to date myself, Roberto Duran. That ring a bell with any of the old timers in here? Back in 1980, fought against Sugar Ray Leonard in the eighth round. He was so flabbergasted by Sugar Ray's dancing and sparring, and that he he just threw up his hands and he said, "No moss, no moss." Anybody remember that? So that's kind of like what the three friends are with Job. They've stepped in the ring but they haven't made any progress in knocking him down, convincing him that he was a great sinner. So basically, they're throwing up their hands, they're quitting, and they're saying no Moss. And as I said, even so far, in the third round, as a third friend, didn't even go into the round, go into the ring. So now in chapter 32, a newcomer steps into the ring to spar with Job, And his name is Elihu. So how do we understand this fourth friend? Uh, Is he going to use the same tactics? Or will he have a different approach with Job? And he takes Job to task. He's also going to take his three friends to task. So it's a very interesting speech. And if you look at chapter 32, verse 18, he says, for I am full of words, the spirit within me constrains me. Now he's going to go on for six chapters, so nobody argues with him when he says I am full. That advances a controversy between Job and his three friends. I think Elihu is going to actually present some new thoughts and move the ball forward down the field And get closer to the truth of what Job is really happening with Job. And maybe this is why at the end of these six chapters, Elihu's speaking in all of them, Job doesn't even give a response. Because I think maybe Elihu is starting to get a little closer to the truth. and, uh, And it's just kind of an interesting speech. Now, it's also interesting that at the end of the book, in chapter 42, God will condemn Job's three friends, but he does not condemn Elihu, this guy. Uh, There may be reasons for that. It may be that Elihu is laying the groundwork for God to speak right afterwards. So we're getting towards the end of the book, and we're bringing in this fourth friend now, And so we're going to kind of briefly uh, work through these six chapters, highlight some important things. Now I'm going to try to summarize it and bring out a conclusion of what I think Elihu is contributing to this whole storyline in the book of Job. So we start in uh, chapter 32, which is basically Elihu venting his anger. And it's going to burn against Job, and it's going to burn against his three friends. So let me start reading in Job chapter 32, verse 1. Then the three men ceased answering Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. His anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had wanted to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three friends, his anger burned. So the opening is that Elihu is angry. He's not only angry with Job, but he's also uh angry with his friends. And uh so it's so he's he's basically launching out uh because he he thinks that they have not addressed the issues. Job has been too self-righteous, the three friends have not been able to address Job accurately. So, he is now moved in anger to, to speak as a young man. In verses 6-10, through 10, he gives his rationale for why he waited. And it's a good rationale, starting in verse 6. So, Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me, I too will tell what I think. So he was appropriate. I mean, it's etiquette for younger men to respect older men in general, and that's what he's doing. So he didn't speak because he thought the older men should have that, that privilege. But uh, he doesn't think that they offered anything of substance. So now he is moved to speak. And so in verses 11 through 22, through the rest of chapter 32, uh, Elihu now vents his anger towards the three friends. He says, basically, you guys are failures. And look, for example, at verse 12. He says, I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. So Elihu thinks that these three friends totally failed in getting at the core issue. They have not silenced Job. Uh, Basically, they're failures. So that's kind of Job chapter 32. So then we move into Job chapter 33. And this is where Elihu begins to address Job's pride. So we read in uh, verses 8 through 11, if you'll follow as I read this, chapter 33, starting in verse 8. Elihu says concerning Job, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. And now he kind of quotes the words of Job that he has heard him say in verse 9 I am pure, without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. Talking about God. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. So here, Elihu is saying that um, basically, Job, you are full of pride. You are claiming that you are pure, verse 9, without transgression, innocent, with no guilt. And that God has abused you, verse 10. He invents pretexts against me. He puts my feet in the stocks. So, So Elihu is saying... Job, I've heard you say that you're claiming to be innocent and that God is in the wrong for the way He treated you. So he has emphasized that. And then in verse 12 and 13, he gives a rebuke to Job. He says, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain against Him that He does not give an account of all of His doings? So he just comes right out and rebukes Job for his arrogance, for claiming to be innocent, and then accusing God of wrongdoing. And Elihu appropriately rebukes Job for that. In the rest of chapter 33, starting in verse 14 all the way down to the end, Elihu now gives a defense of God's methods in dealing with sinners To move upon them to repent of their sin. And, And Elihu here is just speaking in general. And throughout this section, Elihu says God will use dreams. God will use chastenings and afflictions. And He'll also use angels to come in and expose sin and lead sinners to repentance. And then he summarizes in verse 29 and 30, if you'll look at that. Chapter 33, verse 29. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. So Elihu is basically just speaking general. You know, God can use all kinds of different methods to get our attention, to deal with us when we fall into sin. So he's just kind of talking generally that God has many weapons in his, in his arsenal to actually address sinners and lead them to repentance so that they can be restored. So that's basically chapter 33. Now in chapters 34 and 35, Job is, uh, now has... His some of his pride under attack because Elihu is going to uh, expose Job's attack on, on God's justice. So this is going to really take up two chapters. And here Elihu is going to hold Job accountable for accusing God of being unjust. And that's again going to be chapter 34 and 35. So look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 34. Again, it kind of repeats an earlier thing he said. Chapter 34, verse 5, look at that. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie wound? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. So he's quoting the words of Job. Job says, I'm innocent. I'm without guilt. I'm without transgression. But God has wronged me. He has taken away my right. He has not dealt with me in justice. So he's pointing that out to Job. Now, this is interesting because this has been a theme we've seen developing in the book of Job. For example, earlier... In Job chapter 9, verse 22, Job said, It is all one, therefore I say, He, God, destroys the guiltless and the wicked. So earlier Job is complaining, Look, God treats everybody the same. He destroys the sinner, but He also destroys the one without guilt. So he's accusing God of a a level of, of injustice. He said it again in Job chapter 10, verse 7. According to your knowledge, talking to God, Job says, I am indeed not guilty, and yet there's no deliverance from your hand. Lord, you know I am not guilty of the sins that I've been accused of. I've been innocent, and yet you have not delivered me. So this is, this is again Job laying an accusation of distorting justice at the feet of God. And then in Job chapter 19, verse 6, look at what he said. Know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. You see how bold Job is in his pride? This is what has been slowly, gradually developing throughout the book of Job. It wasn't there at the beginning, but it starts to develop now as he has to deal with this, uh, all these afflictions that he's, uh, that he's dealing with. So, Elihu. Uh, lays out Job's complaint against God in chapter thirty-four. Then he gives a response to Job's friends and the way they uh, they responded to Job in light of this. If you look at verse uh, seven through nine, and this is probably Elihu quoting Job's three other friends. It's not real clear here, chapter 34, verse 7, but probably they are saying, what man is like Job, he drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men, for he has said, it profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. So I think Elihu may be quoting some of the things that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar had said earlier. And then Elihu defends God. And this is kind of a major part of chapter 34. He defends God. So look at verse 11 of chapter 34. Elihu now says in response to Job's pride. He says, for he, God, pays a man according to his work. He makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So he's very clear on affirming, Job, you have accused God of being unjust, but God will not pervert justice. He is a just and a righteous God. And then drop down to verse 21. For his eyes are upon the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. So God sees all, he knows all, he renders justice because he is a just God. So Elihu is defending God's justice in that section. But now uh, look at verse 31. This is what is interesting to me that I think Elihu is now bringing in somewhat of a, of a new thought. He's saying that Elihu, Elihu is saying that there are judgments from God for secret sins. Sins that we're not aware of. Now this is kind of a, a new approach to dealing with Job. That maybe some of God's afflictions are upon you are or, or for sins that, are, that we could call secret sins or sins that you're not aware of. Now the other friends were accusing Job, you have these huge gigantic sins and you just need to come clean. You know you're a sinner, you need to repent. But Elihu begins to, to raise this new concept of maybe there are sins that you're not aware of that God is dealing with you on. So look at uh, verse 31. I'm still in chapter 34. And look at verse 31. He says, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will not do it again. And shall he recompense on your terms because you have rejected it? For you must choose, and not I, therefore declare what you know now there's a lot in here, but I think what Elihu is saying is that job, even if God is dealing with you for sins that you're not aware of, you have no right to complain against God. That seems to be the general idea but the but the notion is, and this is what's kind of new here, is that God could send some of His afflictions into our life, not for overt sins, outward sins that we have not repented of, but for secret sins that we haven't dealt with. Hidden sins. And that's why He says in verse 32, even if you say, teach thou me what I do not see, and I will do it no more. This is more of a humble uh, petition to God so I've got these these afflictions in my life, but Lord, if it's because of any sins in my life that I do not see, then show them to me and I'll do them no more. And that brings more of the innocent sufferer concept into play. That Elihu seems to be considering that there are can be judgments and afflictions not for overt sins, but but for secret sins or sins that I'm ignorant of. And that really kind of advances a new idea in the book of Job. Uh, we know that uh, <clears throat> there are such things as secret sins. For example, in Psalm 19, verse 12, it says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So that's David praying, saying, you know, who can really discern all of our sins? So, Lord, equip me of the hidden faults, the ones that I'm not aware of, the sins that are kind of down in there that I don't see in my life. Lord, show me those as well so that I can repent of them. In Psalm 19, verse 13, he says, Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Where I I presume things wrongly, but I'm not aware of it, show those to me, God, as well. Psalm 90, verse 8 says, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Sins that we either hide or sins that were unknown to us. We We don't see those sins in our life. So this is kind of a different approach to Job. So having said that, now in chapter 35, Elihu rebukes Job for what is becoming more clearly manifested in his life and that is pride and self-righteousness and impatience with God. So we read, let me just highlight a few verses in chapter 35. Look at what he says to Job. This is Elihu speaking to Job. Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? So Elihu is again pointing out, Job, you're claiming to be more righteous than God. I mean, that's pride. In verse 12, Elihu says again to Job, There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. And here he's speaking generally that Job, you have cried out and God has not answered you because in general, God, when, when, when the pride of evil men cries out, God doesn't answer them. You fit in that category. Someone who has pride in your heart. And then in verse 14... Of chapter thirty-five, how much less when you say you do not behold him? The case is before him; you must wait for him. In other words, you've been too impatient with God, Job. You're full of pride. You have self-righteousness in your heart. You have these secret sins that you're, that, that have not been there before, but they've been gradually brought forward. And, and you've been impatient with God. You've not waited upon the Lord. So th- this, is, this is kind of a new angle. See, the three friends were all saying, you know, Job, you're guilty of these great, huge, heinous sins. Maybe, you know, murder or adultery or things like that. And you need to repent of all that. But Elihu is coming and saying, you know, maybe the Lord is dealing with you for sins that you're just not aware of. Secret sins. Sins that are down there inside. So now we come to chapter 36 and 37. And uh, these are the last two chapters of Elihu's speech. And he starts out, number one, by saying, God is righteous and mighty. So again, he returns to this Understanding of exalting God. God is great. And he says in verse 4 that God is perfect in knowledge. In verse 5 that God is mighty in strength of understanding. God possesses knowledge of all things. He understands all things. He's perfect in knowledge. So there's no abuse there on God's part. And then, again, very interestingly... Starting in verse 7, Elihu brings up the notion that God may even afflict the righteous man. Now again, this is a step forward. It's different than the three friends. The three friends says God only afflicts wicked evil men. But Elihu is setting forth the concept that God can even afflict the righteous for reasons that He will lay out in just a moment. But look at verse 7. So now I'm in chapter 36. And look at verse 7. He, that's God, does not withdraw His eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, He has seated them forever. They are exalted." And if they are bound in fetters, who does the they refer to? Well, the righteous. If the righteous are bound in fetters and are caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they have magnified themselves. He opens their ear to instruction and commands that they return from evil. And if they hear and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. So what is Elihu saying here? He's saying, Job, yes, God can bring afflictions upon the wicked, but he can also use afflictions to instruct the righteous. And this is what I think why he's getting closer to the mark. He's beginning to, to understand that in God's sovereignty, God can bring about afflictions even in the life of a godly man and woman. Afflictions that are, that are sore trials, difficulties, problems. But it's not injustice dealing with their sin. Is to accomplish other things in their life. And one of the things that God will use these afflictions to do is to cause us in our response to those afflictions to expose other secret sins, issues buried way down in our heart that normally don't impact our day-to-day life, but put somebody in deep afflictions and these things start popping out. And I think that is what's happening with Job. He was a godly man. He was a righteous man. But God allowed Satan to come and afflict him to show the reality and truthfulness of Job's faith. That's the first reason for his afflictions. But the second reason is that as Job has now been having to persevere through the intensity and the duration of these trials that he has, the bodily afflictions that he has, the poverty, scraping himself with pot sherds on an ash heap outside the city, looked upon as a scum of the earth. As that trial has persevered and lasted, his faith has begun to weaken like all of ours would as well. And issues down in his heart begin to surface and show themselves. So a second reason for the afflictions is that God in His goodness and kindness and loving kindness to His children brings afflictions in the lives of godly men and women to deal with stuff that's still down in in our hearts. And I think this is something new. And this is why I think he's getting closer to the mark. See, what, what is the sin that has been growing in, in Job's heart? Now, we know in chapter 1 and 2, he's a righteous man. He's a blameless man. God looks upon him as a man with, after his own heart. He's a godly man, chapter 1, chapter 2. But as we've been going through the book, what have we seen Job do? He begins to challenge God's justice. He begins to reveal more pride in his heart. More self-righteousness. Now that wasn't there in chapter 1 and 2. That was not there. He was a godly man, a righteous man, an obedient man, a man who worshipped God. But as the affliction and ordeal continued and lasted and kept on going week after week, month after month, these issues deep down in his heart began to emerge. Sin, pride, self-righteousness. But God ordains it to sanctify Job, to teach him humility because now he's seeing these things that really weren't there before to any measurable degree and also help him to grow in purity as 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 he repents of that sin. You know, some of our sins lie dormant and they hibernate deep down inside of our flesh like a sleeping bear. The potential of, for example, with Job, of pride is always there. It's part of our nature. But it's subdued by the blessings of God, the goodness of God. But when God sends afflictions, they can arouse those dormant, hibernating vices within our heart. And they come crawling out of the ground and they can inflict great pain upon us. Remember Paul in Acts chapter 28. So he's been on a ship. They're caught up in the storm. The, the, the ship finally crashes out on a reef by the, the island of Malta. And they all make it to shore by the grace of God, but there's a storm, it's raining, it's cold, so they make a great big fire. You remember that? Acts 28. Paul, being the servant that he is, wants to help keep the fire going. So he goes up and grabs a big pile of sticks. A big bundle of sticks. And he lays them on the fire. And out of those sticks came a viper. And the viper latched on to his hand, no doubt creating some pain. And eventually he he was able to throw it into the fire. And in the miracle of God, he suffered no no, uh, harm from it, even though it was a venomous snake. I think that illustrates what happens in our life That that viper which was hidden down inside those sticks and did not come out until it was thrown into the fire are like sins in our heart. Little snakes, little vipers that are buried down in the bundle of the sticks down inside of us. And there they stay quiet. And there they don't move around a lot until the bundle is thrown into the fire. And it's the afflictions, it's the trials, it's the fire of all of our problems and difficulties that make those little vipers come crawling out of our life. You can see it in your home, right? You can have a man maybe that's a very patient man. And fits me, I mean, what what, what I'm about to say fits me well. Uh can be very patient, but you bring in a lot of stress. You bring in a lot of anxiety and what spews out of them? A lot of impatience. You can have someone not given to anger and yet the trials, the afflictions of life, suddenly they're saying things and doing things that are out of character for them. New little vipers and snakes have come out because of the fire of the ordeal that we're going through. I think this is kind of what a lie who is hinting at for Job. Whether it's anger or impatience or worry. You know, these may not be sins that we struggle with in general. Our character is not there, but you put us in that boiling pot. You put us in those circumstances that seem to never end, and suddenly this stuff is just oozing out of us. The Dr. Jekyll can turn into a Mr. Hyde. Or little Dorothy, sweet little Dorothy, can turn into the wicked witch of the West. And you can just see how the trials and the things that we go through can just expose these little hidden sins down in our heart. And I think this is what God is doing with with Job. And I think Elihu is starting to get pretty close to the mark. God brings trials into our life to expose those little snakes, those little vipers living deep down in our hearts, our secret sins, that have not really manifested themselves to any great degree, and yet the fire of the trial causes them to come out and inflict damage. And the reason why God does that is to let us see what's down in our heart, to see the sin, to humble us, And like with Paul, to shake that snake, that viper, off into the fire and be done with it. Or at least to repent of it till it bites us again. But that's the insight that I think Elihu is bringing to the struggles of Job. So Job was a righteous, godly man. But as his afflictions continued on, pride began to show its ugly face in his life. You see it in his words. You see that 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 humility, outward humility, that he normally lived in as a godly man, yet under the fire of the affliction, the pride began to come up. He began to accuse God of wronging him. He accused God of being unjust. And God has allowed that in his life, has sovereignly ordained it to Helps Job grow in his purity, grow in his humility, to see what really lies down inside. Maybe he's doing that with you, and with me. So that's the uh, that's the amazing thing in verses seven through twelve, that God is using affliction to instruct the righteous, and I think that's a very much a key passage that comes out of Elihu's thinking. And then in chapter 36, if you go to verse 22, and really you go to the end of chapter 37, Elihu now just returns back to the theme of God being exalted in all of His ways and all of His works. So Elihu again exposes... Uh, Job's pride, if you look at chapter 36, verse 23, he says, Who has appointed him his way? Who has appointed to God his way? And who has said, You have done wrong? Well, you know who said that God has done wrong? Job did. Back in chapter 19, verse 6. So Elihu again is just kind of reminding of Job that he he has a new a new sin to wrestle with and that's his pride. But in general what Elihu is doing is he's exalting the greatness of God. And it's interesting that in this passage Elihu draws on the characteristics of a storm starting in verse 27 of chapter 36. All the way down through most of chapter 37, he utilizes a storm. And he's saying that that God is sovereign over the storm. He controls the winds of the storm. He controls the lightning bolts of the storm. And he uses that storm for different reasons. And and he's he's using this to just lay forth the glory of God's character. And uh, if you look at some of the things he's saying about the storm, about God's character in the context of describing the storm and all that storms can can do. In chapter 37, verse 5, he says that um, we cannot comprehend God's ways. says, doing great things which we cannot understand, we cannot comprehend. That the storm just teaches us that we can't understand all the ways of God. In in verses 12 through 13, God is sovereign over the storm, and He uses it for correction, blessings, and loving kindness. Now, look at this. Look at verse uh, 12, chapter 37. It changes direction, talking about the storm, turning around by His guidance. He turns it whichever way He wishes. That it may do whatever He commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. So God is totally sovereign over the storm. And then look at verse 13. How does He use it on the face of the earth? What does He command it for? Verse 13. Correction. He can use a storm to correct people. Either a a physical storm or, or a trial which is like a storm in our life. For correction, for his world, he uses a storm to bring water to the plants that he's created, his providence. Or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. His loving kindness. And I think this again is an encouraging word to Job. That God has sent a storm into your life, Job, and it has lasted to this day. But he sends storms for many different reasons. Sometimes to correct for sin. Sometimes to just water and, and provide for his world. And then sometimes out of love and kindness, loving kindness, he sends those storms. It's not because he's punishing someone for great sin, it's because out of his love for them, his loving kindness towards them, he wants to work grace in their heart and life. And that's where it's beginning to apply, I think, more to the circumstance of Job. So, what should our response be? We'll look at verse uh, 21. Well, I missed some of these others uh, while I'm on this uh, this slide he said, God is perfect in knowledge. He has awesome majesty. And we cannot find Him. There's a mystery to God. You cannot understand Him. You can't just snap your fingers and make God appear. But uh, if you look at verse 34, this is really how Elihu sums up this very lengthy speech. And he says, what should our response be? He says, therefore men, fear Him. fear God he does not regard any who are wise of heart who are proud so in conclusion what Job's trials reveal is that this godly righteous man was afflicted with terrible pain and loss to reveal to Satan that his faith was genuine Okay, that's the, that's the first reason God brought all these things into Job's life. It's to show to Satan that Job had true faith. Job just didn't worship God because God blessed him. Job's faith was deeper than that. It was richer than that. He, he loved God. He worshipped God, even if he lost everything. His children, his wealth, his health. And he did not sin. But this godly man enduring suffering far more than we can imagine began to struggle in his faith. He was innocent of the sins that his friends accused him of, but nevertheless he began to struggle in his heart with God being just. His three friends kept beating the drum that, Job, you're in denial you're guilty of all these great sins, you need to come clean, repent, and then God will restore you. But God but but Job knew that that was a false accusation. But as the, all of these trials endured and the severity did not lighten up and they they kept plaguing his life week after week, month after month, his faith began to waver. Of course, ours again ours would too. My goodness. And he began to say things that were inappropriate. He began to challenge God. He began to accuse God of wronging him and of being unjust to him. This is a new sin that has been developed within his his life in response to his afflictions. All Job wanted to do is to meet with God in, in a court of law. He believed that he could defend himself and his innocence. That was his solution. Job was calling on God to, to answer him, to meet with him, but God was not answering the phone. God was not returning his calls. And in frustration, Job, who believed that if he could only have his day in court, that God would surely have to pronounce him as being not guilty and acquit him if he could just get before God, became impatient and he became proud and he began to accuse God of injustice and wronging him. And all of this is because of the longevity of the trial and the ordeal that he's going through. Job's faith at this point has crossed the line. He began to commit sins that he had not committed before. He began to argue with God about God's fairness. He questioned God's justice and this was sin. This was pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, defending himself before God, no humility before God. And so Elihu seems to suggest That God in His loving kindness is using these afflictions for a second reason. The first one is to show Satan that Job's faith is real and genuine. But the second one is to show Job that even though he was a godly man, a righteous man, there's still little vipers, little secret sins down in his heart that the afflictions and trials are causing to surface so that Job can return to a state of humility and acknowledging his pride and also deal with it and repent of his pride. And so all of what Elihu is saying, I think, is showing Job that God can bring afflictions upon righteous men and women not as punishment, not as an issue of justice, but as an issue of His loving kindness to help us to grow in grace, to grow in humility, to grow in purity of life. And this is, uh, looks at Job's suffering from a different perspective from his friends. Because suffering, your suffering, your afflictions may not be due to God's dealing justly with sin in your life, but with God's loving kindness upon you to help you to grow more in grace. To see some of those secret sins that we're not aware of. To bring them up to the surface so that we can acknowledge them and deal with them through repentance. And again, that's a new idea. It certainly should uh, to make us all watchful in our own lives. Like David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. But it should also teach us, if, this, if Elihu's approach is what I think it is, it should encourage us all to trust and wait upon God when we don't understand why afflictions and troubles have come into our life. And what Elihu is basically saying is Job, sometimes in our life, we don't need to look back and try to find the sin as a cause of our afflictions, but rather look forward and see what God is doing. He is advancing you in purity, He's advancing you in humility. He's growing grace. Look forward to the result of the affliction, not look back to the cause of the affliction. And I think for Job, that may very well be the reason why when Elihu stopped, and you could look at Job, he's probably saying, maybe he's got a point. Maybe this is a new way to understand why God has brought these afflictions in my life. So, Job's friends were utter failures. Elihu seems to be getting closer to the mark by saying that God can send afflictions to righteous men. Not great sinners like his friends were saying, but to even the righteous man and woman as a blessing to them To help them expose the little vipers down in the bundles deep in our heart that don't come out until we're thrown in the fire. But then we can cast them, identify them, expose them, and cast them into the fire and deal with them through godly repentance. So I think Elihu is saying to Job that God reveals our sins so He can heal our sins. And sometimes it takes afflictions for that process to take place. Elihu, I think, is preparing the way for the next speaker and that's God Almighty. And God will now enter the stage and enter the ring and He'll do the cleanup. Elihu has defended God's greatness with the suggestion that God has good reasons when He sends afflictions upon the righteous. And sometimes it's to deal with pride and self-righteousness that develops over time under affliction. The snake has not surfaced before in Job's life. That is the viper of pride and self-righteousness. But it has now because of the duration of his ordeal that God is going to deal with Job and He will deal with the viper. And the result is He's going to be restored. And you know that because you've read the end of the book. So all is left for us now is to wait to hear from God. Because God will speak next and He'll make everything right. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, next time. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we we thank You for this incredible book of Job which is such a masterpiece of the Holy Spirit to challenge God's people and how we respond to our trials. We often don't understand the cause, but Lord Elihu has brought in this new thought to Job that it's not always because of God's justice that He afflicts us, but it's in His loving-kindness to do us good. That He has benevolent reasons. And we just need to learn to trust Him and wait upon Him. Because our God is a good God. So Lord, may these truths uh, encourage our own uh, struggles. May it encourage our own faith to trust in God. Though we may not know why the trials come our way, we can trust that they come from the loving hand of our good and wise and infinitely exalted and glorious God, so we can trust Him and we can wait upon Him. So help us in those ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.